Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Our guest today is Fletcher Wheaton, an international real estate investor and educator, owner at Cabo Key Real Estate Holdings, and the podcast host of Real Estate Without Borders, which focuses on international real estate markets and investing. Fletcher first got into real estate in 2008 when he and his family invested into student housing in his hometown of New Orleans. Then his life changed on a real estate scouting trip in Los Cabos, Mexico, where he met his wife and has since transitioned to building an investment portfolio in the Mexican beach markets. Fletcher now helps North American investors buy into these markets with his extensive knowledge and local connections. In this episode, we break down the reasons why people would seek investments overseas and why Mexico stands out as a popular choice, especially for Americans. We assess the future of Mexican commercial real estate and how investors can maximize value on the way while digging into the specifics of Cabo and what makes this market unique. Whether it's from a demographics perspective, what it takes to diligence a potential investment in Mexico, from the developer to financing, legal, and entity considerations, all of which are very important for anyone considering entering into this potentially lucrative market. Fletcher, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Adapia. Very excited to be on today. Yeah, it's great to have you. It's great to have you. I'm really looking forward to the conversation because your background as a real estate investor starts in America. And then we're going to talk a lot about what you're doing currently in Mexico and specifically Cabo. So we always like to start with like telling a little bit about your story. It's always so interesting to hear how everybody kind of rolls into real estate investing because we all have different ways that we got into it. So how did you get your start in real estate? So I've always been fascinated with real estate. You know, like when I was little, I would kind of like do mock-up like architecture stuff where I, you know, I remember I had like a little fire pole where I would slide down and stuff. But if you fast forward to college, the, when I was in college, you know, I remember living in with four roommates and just, I didn't know who we were paying rent to. And I was like, well, this is, seems like a pretty gravy job. Cause I know the guy had two places. So when I got home after I graduated, you know, I talked with my father and I said, why don't we, you know, get some rental properties. And this was maybe 2008. Okay. And Hurricane Katrina had hit New Orleans in 2005. So you would say, Hey, that's a terrible time to invest, but New Orleans was already at a low. So we accumulated duplexes and triplexes in the university area and really focused on young professional or student housing. So that's really how we got in. And we basically got up to about 20 tenants. And that's, that's how I really got into, you know, rental properties and real estate investing. So you, so how did you actually like do that when you say like you accumulated, like what was what was like your first step towards 
like I'm thinking about financing, like how did you finance your first and like what led you to say, hey, we're actually going to accumulate and what were property prices back then? So I tell, I have a lot of people reach out that are younger and I had the good fortune of having the backing of my father. So I always recommend if people can start out, you know, family and friends. I was in a fortunate position where my father had capital that we could put to work. So we're looking at houses and these, these properties we got for, I think it was $110 per square foot in New Orleans. So it's $250,000 were our first two properties. One was a duplex, the other was a triplex. And those cash flowed really nicely. And we had those for about two years and said, hey, this is doing very well. And that's really when we, we started adding to the portfolio. But it was definitely family money that was, that was involved. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it's, I mean, it's how alpha started, maybe not with like fathers, but definitely like, you know, friends and family money. And even when I worked at, when I worked at a, at a hedge fund years and years and years ago, the hedge fund managers, by the time I was there was a half a billion dollar fund, but they had started with friends and family. And so, you know, it's similar. And I always use that as, as a parallel when I speak to investors, because I remember I was in investor relations at the fund and they would say like, like we are not losing our family's money. And, and, and so that's like, you know, that's how we started, how a lot of people, how a lot of people start. So, so you started there and, but now you live in Mexico. So tell me, tell us about that transition. Yeah, quite a turn, huh? So that's actually, I remember this quite vividly. It was a Monday and my father called me and basically said, Hey, look, I I had no idea about this. He said, Hey, look, I, I bought two places in Los Cabos. Would you like to go down on Friday with me? And uh, at the time, I didn't even know where Cabo San Lucas was. So I did a little research and I was like, uh, beach? Okay, let's go. And basically that weekend we get down there and right when we get to the hotel we're staying at, you know, his phone buzzes and it's the realtor coming to pick us up to show us the, the model house because it was pre-construction. And uh, it was Cinco de Mayo weekend and you know, long story short, that realtor is now my wife. You know, we, she showed us around and then I was like, Hey, do you guys celebrate Cinco de Mayo here? And she was like, well, we do. Cause you guys do. So we ended up going out for Cinco de Mayo, but I'm now married with Elisa. We have a son, Parker, and she's been in real estate for 10 years. And, you know, those two houses have turned two houses and three condos right now. Wow. That's it. <laughs> that's a great story. I love, I actually didn't know that about you. That's a fantastic story. So So you decide, okay, so you've, so now you're there, right? And, you know, and and I know you because we're in the same mastermind and, you know, you're so focused on, on creating a lot of, a lot of content and you've been really getting into, you know, I wouldn't say promoting, that's the wrong word, but you also have access to opportunities in Mexico. So I think where I would like to, to really go now is, is to understand like let's break down an opportunity for for those of us here in America where we're just like oh I don't know how do you invest in Mexico why would I want to do that isn't it complicated like you know starting from from that perspective where where it's like wait a second I don't know about this why is it such a great opportunity because you're so passionate about it and honestly like the videos that you're posting they're it's gorgeous out there like I want to move there so you know what what is it about the properties there, where is the opportunity and how would somebody make that opportunity happen? Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. So 
First of all, you know, one of my ideal investor investors or people buying real estate here would be somebody like my father. And historically, he just had, I think at that time, he had basically realized he's like, look, I have uh, a very sound f uh, financial foundation, but I'm very heavy into stocks. And uh, we had obviously done the rental properties in New Orleans, but it was kind of like, hey, let me kind of, he had studied abroad. He went to Stanford and had studied abroad in Mexico. And basically that's kind of how he got there. And since we've got those properties, I will say from a price point, you know, they're, it's way cheaper than anything you'd find in the United States for, especially being in that beach market. So I think right there, you're going to get the value off the fact that Hey, some of the, you know, I'd say the condos that we've got are going to be around 200 to $250,000 brand new. You know, we're not talking right on the beach, but we're talking about ocean view. So we're talking about, you know, that same property and let's say San Diego or somewhere like Miami or Florida, you're probably looking at three, four times that. And then on top of that, what a lot of people don't realize is Cabo, I'd say the real estate market is probably 75 to 80%. United States and Canadian um, buyers. Therefore, everything's going to be in the dollar. And I would say out of the remaining, you know, about 20% of that, it's going to be affluent Mexicans. And a lot of these affluent Mexicans want to diversify outside of the peso. So the dollar is king in Cabo, as well as, you know, Puerto Vallarta, Tulum, Playa del Carmen, all these places, you're going to be buying real estate in the U.S. dollar. And on top of that, you know, you're getting your rental income in the U.S. dollar. So for us, you know, you look at the United States right now and especially with the, the very low interest rates and just, you know, from 2008 on up, I, I think you could say that, you know, real estate could be expensive in a lot of markets. I don't know if that means in five years it's, it's higher, but, you know, you could definitely say it's to the point where it's very unaffordable for many people in the United States. I think in Cabo and other parts of Mexico, there's an opportunity because you're just getting in sort of at the, the ground level. I also, I really like the demographics of Latin America and Mexico, and I, I could speak more of that too. As far as like the marketing, I, Cabo is just a great place. You know, you know, you can take out the, the photo, you know, or a video and it just kind of like the first time I took a video, somebody was like, wow, man, that sky is like that blue is insane. And I was like, okay, maybe at APIA, you knew I was always writing articles and whatnot. So I did the first video and it got a lot more attention than any articles I wrote. Maybe I'm a bad writer or maybe Cabo is beautiful. Either way, that was kind of how I got into the video marketing there. And it's just really kind of helped me create my niche there. Well, I would, I would also say we're not really reading that much <laughs> as we just don't read that much. I'm a writer. It breaks my heart because even, even I find myself really a lot of times unable to really read. And then also, you know, you're, you're really in a really beautiful place. Anytime you're in a beautiful place, like the visuals are, are going to do it so much, so much more justice. And I was just thinking as you were speaking, because I didn't really know about Cabo or, or really exactly, you know, like exactly where it was. And, you know, it's, like it's spring break right now ish, right? What's spring break like in Cabo versus like Cancun or, or, or other places? Like what's the market like there right now? That's pretty funny. You know, this year it's going to be a little bit more tame, obviously with coronavirus, but from my perspective, this is probably the worst time to fly into Cabo because you're going to have, you know, the, or sorry, the airplane tickets are going to be a little bit more expensive, but really 
you know, the, the weather in Cabo from, I would say, mid-October to right now when you're going through a spring break season, that's like peak season. And this is really like the last tailwind of that. And that's not to say that the rest of the year it's, it's dull, but I would say it can get, it's not going to be like a very super college like you might go to other markets. And I would say that because if you look at the average daily rate of hotels, Cabo's right around $300. It's a very pricey place to go. If you go to the Riviera Maya, like Cancun, Tulum, Playa del Carmen, that average daily rate is about $160. So it's almost double. So in that regard, you're actually kind of pricing out that like, and look, don't get me wrong. You're still going to have uh, the party vibe, but it's nowhere near. It's not like you come down and all of a sudden, you know, people are doing you know, beer bongs on the beach. It's um, a little bit more sophisticated, but uh, without a doubt, you're going to have that extra tourist boom during these times. Yeah. So yeah. So it sounds like that would probably be a, if, if, if you're going to travel around now, like that's your better place, especially if, if you're like a little older, <laughs> like I put myself in that camp these days where I am, I am not interested in, in beer bong, but I was actually surprised when you first told me about the hotel rates there and that it is this more, like you said, it's like a more affluent market. I have a friend who's currently staying in Sayulita and he was saying, uh, and I live in Topanga, California, and which is kind of like hippie. And he's just like, oh, he's like, no, he's like, the, like Sayulita is, is like, everyone thinks they're a shaman. And so, you know, so it just seems like if someone is going to travel, like, you know, like it's kind of sounds um, like, like Cabo is, is almost like a gem that a lot of people haven't discovered. Yeah, no, without a doubt. So Cabo has really kind of distinguished itself as like the luxury and that's not taking away from like Puerto Vallarta or Tulum. It's just, you know, you walk around or you go around Cabo and there's definitely some people that have money. However, that has presented a lot of opportunity. You know, when, when I got to Cabo, it was kind of like this, you know, I call it three markets. You have this like, you know, kind of ridiculous, you know, beachfront kind of mansion, like, you know, uh, celebrity type villas, you know, and that's obviously like beautiful, right? And then you really had this lower tier where it was like this kind of reminded me of like 1990s shoddy Mexican construction that you wouldn't necessarily want to stay in. And then you have this middle market and that's where we really like it, where it's affordable enough for the, the working class to pay as well as people right now that are like working remotely or, but we really like that middle market. So you have a, a, a whole plethora of, of markets, but yes, I would say there's, there's plenty of opportunity in Cabo. And another thing too, is that, you know, Cancun just turned 50 years old and Cabo, basically everybody in Cabo would call Cancun a mature market at 50 years old. So you had a lot of this, this land in Cabo, like in the 1990s, that was public domain. And it just, you know, it's, it opened up to private investment and from there. So right now you still have more land than you actually have development. And for that reason, it's a less mature market. Cabo just has uh, a lot of room to run. And with that being said, right now you have development popping up left and right. But uh, there's still, I, I think for the next 10, 15 years, you're gonna see a, a, a very good market here. And another thing is if you look at population growth, Quintana Roo, which is where Cancun, Playa del Carmen and Tulum 
and Los Cabos are the fastest growing populations from 2010 to 2020, both growing at over 3% a year for population growth. And that's just kind of speaks volumes to the attention that these beach markets are getting. So let's talk about, you know, how a U.S.-based investor should think about making the decision to invest outside the U.S. And so, you know, most we'll call them high net worth, ultra high net worth investors are already under allocated in into U.S. real estate. And then you add the additional hurdle of the unknown, which is investing in another country. How, how should people think about it? Is it is it hard? Is, is was it really easy to get it done? Like, is it something everyone should be considering? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good question. You know, the first thing people are like, whoa, 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 you know, and so they're like, hey, is, is Mexico safe, first of all? And then like, hey, is it legal to own real estate there? And that's really where somebody like me comes in and kind of links you up. I'm very well connected to attorneys, accountants, all that. But at the end of the day, you know, people have been safely, there's over, it's not like um, you're a pioneer these days. There's over one, I think it's right now, the, the last census, there's 1.1 million Americans growing or living in, in Cabo, or sorry, in Mexico, and that's growing. So you have this really large expat population. So the structures, we can get into that, but it's, it's very safe to own real estate. It really depends which way you're going, if you're looking for like multiple properties or a beach house. But from that perspective, you know, there's there's nothing that would prevent you from from buying there. And a lot of people just don't understand that. And, and past that, Daniel, you know, if I go into like the, the safety, I think that's just something that's overblown as well. So if I'm comparing rental property, because we're talking about rental properties here in the U.S. versus, versus Cabo, for example, like who, how do you look at that? Like, what, what's your yield on, on cost? Are you getting more bang for your buck in a, in a place like Cabo? Or, you know, can you still find some markets in the U.S. where maybe it makes more sense? Good question. So I actually just sent an email to somebody yesterday with two properties and the, the yields were just on the rental yields were six and a half percent. And the other one was about 7.7% on rental yields. So I think the rental yields are very good there, but however, I, and as an investor, I never really factor into appreciation, but I think that's really where the money is. If you get in right now in these Mexican markets, I think if you look 10 or 15 years, and then you look at what's going on in the United States, I think from a, there's a far less risk from an appreciation standpoint, I just think, you know, from a cost basis, I think a lot of properties, a lot of markets in the United States are very expensive. I've been saying that for a while now and it keeps going up. So I'm not saying that that won't happen, but I do think from appreciation aspect, I think these markets have a long way to run. Well, so, okay. I just have like a really quick question on, on the yield. So are these are these apartments or are they, are they like single family? Like, are they bungalow? Like what's kind of like the makeup of, of sort of that's that, that we'll call it housing, like housing stock. So yeah, these, those two properties are condos. And so Cabo is really going to have houses, condos, and then smaller multifamilies, like the multifamilies that you're going to see are like 20 units to 40 units. You know, you're not going to have these 300 unit complexes. And if you do, they're getting sold as condos. You know, it's not like nobody's building that. And then, and you know, there's a lot of asset classes that like don't exist. 
for example, I remember when just from the investment background, looking at like senior living, that's like really not a thing in Mexico. Mobile home parks, not really a thing in Mexico, but really that's condos. And that's actually like pre-construction pricing for condos too. Okay. So, okay. That was, I was going to actually ask about development and there's, and I experienced some of this when I was living in Italy where things don't actually get built. You know, is that something that, that happens there? Like, you know, I don't want to say the word corruption, but just culturally and and just like story-wise, like what is the situation there? And especially also, as you said, there's so much building going on that can these developers like actually keep up with it? And I know because you're there and you do this all the time. So, you, you know, from you're like on, you're like boots on the ground there. So you're not just like, like finding listings online. Like you're actually talking to these developers and you know what they're going through. So like, how does that work down there? Cause if you're talking about like pre-sale, so pre-construction rather, that's a different price point than when it comes on the market. So talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, no, this, this is a really good point out of here. You know, you have to vet out the developer, you know, the joke is, you know, oh, hey, we're getting it delivered in December. And the joke is, well, which December, right? So you, you really have to vet out the developers. And with that being said, you know, the projects that, that we invest in, the developer that I work for, we're talking about 15-year track records. We're talking about, you know, projects all over you know, so as far as like new kind of fly by night, I definitely would not do that. I would stick to proven developers and, you know, this might go down another rabbit hole, but I think one of the easiest ways to vet out a developer is to see what financing offer, you know, they have, or they can show you because the fly by night companies will not get any banks to give them money for developer financing, whereas the stronger developers that have these proven track records and have done multiple projects and done them on time where you can see their, you know, their work, they will have access to this financing. Yeah, that's, it's, it's funny when we do, when we evaluate our sponsors at at Alpha, like one of the primary things that we look at is their lender relationships is their other capital partnerships. So, so important. So uh, I was just kind of chuckling that, that you were, that you were saying that because, you know, you might have like accomplished a project here and there, but like fundamentally, like your, your financing is going to make or break a deal. And then, I mean, we don't invest in development, but on the development side, that's going to be even more important because then you might break ground and then you can't get it finished. Oh, and, and speaking of that, actually, how does it work? Cause you're, you know, you work with contractors and I know, I think you said your brother-in-law, we were talking about this before is an architect and talk to us about permits and how that piece kind of factors in. Cause let's say for example, like I'm interested in purchasing a condo and it's in the development phase, it's pre-construction and like I'm really antsy, like I want my condo because I want to come down and I want to rent it when I'm not there and I want to use it when I want to. How, like, how does that factor in like the permits and and the process? Like you said, like the joke is which December, how much does that factor into? Permits is big, you know, I think, and Cabo is one of the strictest markets for, for permitting, you know, and I think Cabo has learned from these other markets. Like for me, and I, I love a lot of parts of Mexico, but for me, Cancun's like Disney World. You know, you just have these 
these sky rises or high rises on the beach, you know, and they are the only ones entitled to that view. Whereas Cabo and the, the Riviera Maya is relatively flat. Cabo is mountainous. So you have a lot of areas where you can build housing and everybody has a view. So you have a very strict building code where if you were looking at buying lots to build a house or build a condo development, you know, some of these will only be zoned for two, three, four stories, pretty much max. So another thing is that the downside of having such a fast population growth is the infrastructure. So things like water in Cabo, the water permit is something that I would not have thought, you know, it coming from the United States would be an issue, but there, they're very serious about making sure they keep up, you know, they have desal plants coming on line and things like that, but that was actually one of the harder permits to get. And then you have a, a federal permit, which is basically, you know, it's all about the environmental use of the, of the land and stuff, but it was actually quite a cumbersome process. Quick question as it relates to financing these deals and putting them together, like what is the interest rate environment like in Mexico? And if you're using U.S. dollars, like I think you said you are for transactions in Cabo, are these Mexican banks, U.S. banks, like how do you think about that whole process? Yeah, so if I had really one thing that I would love to change about real estate in Mexico would be the financing options. So first of all, Mexican banks are really not an option. Well, first of all, like if you went down there, your credit history just really doesn't exist. And if it did and you had a really good credit score, you'd still be looking at about, you know, maybe 9% at, at the downside. Exactly. And so they have cross-border lenders, which I'm going to be honest, they're not, they, they started around 7%, but most of the, the deals that I've seen have been, and this is, you can get, you know, 15, 20, 25 year financing, but you're still looking at about 8%. You're looking at about 40% down. We have stuck to the pre-construction model. The only downside about pre-construction is you're going to put 50% down generally, and your terms are going to be probably five to 6%, and you're only going to be able to go up about 10 years. So those are basically your financing options. Then you have a lot of people, and I actually spoke to somebody in real estate in Cabo, and this was about a year ago, and he was talking about how a lot of people you know, take a home equity line of credit out of their house in the United States to buy there. And he was talking about it, there was a crash because I was, you know, for a while it took me, you know, I was like trying to figure out the market and it's basically, it's almost identical to what's going on in the United States. And he was talking about how it would not be good for a housing crash in the United States for Cabo because so many people have HELOCs on, you know, that's what they use for their financing. So that's, that's a couple ways. I recently spoke to a guy who was visiting and he does real estate in Spain and Portugal. And he was, he told me that Cabo, this was in Cabo, but he said Mexico in general just has the feeling like he he was in Portugal in like the mid 90s and that better options were going to be there. And just talking to him, you know, it was like, hey, there you can get a foreigner can get like a one percent, one and a half percent mortgage for like 30 years, which is absolutely crazy. But uh, those are really some of your financing options. So if you're getting developer financing, maybe five, six percent. If you're going to do like a cross-border lender, like a company like Mexland or Global Mortgage, you're going to looking be looking at closer to eight, nine percent. And Mexican banking really is not an option. Is that the same for like two hundred unit like apartment building, or is that just specific to to single properties? 
Yeah, that's going to be more for like residential. You know, actually the the only commercial property that I was looking at, which was like an 18 unit that I was looking at rehabbing the the banker that I talked reached out to, we actually were getting down to like 8%. This was right before COVID, but you know, you're still going to have rates, you know, double of what you're seeing in the United States these days. But I will say too, the the other side of that too is, you know, these, these really low interest rates in the United States right now, I think that's part of why you're seeing such, you know, price increases on a lot of things these days right now. And you're starting to see like, you know, cap rates compressed and people like can't, you know, they don't even want to put in bonds or things like that. So I think you have a lot of other issues with that. Overall, it's a negative, but I think when you look at it from that standpoint, I think that just shows you how much more these prices could run up if that financing gets any close to even half as good as that. So we talked about this a little bit before the show. You know, there are rules around how U.S. citizens can can buy real estate in Mexico, particularly within certain distances of, of the coast or, or the border. Can you just tell us a little bit about how that works and, and how people work around it and why it makes sense? Yeah, so if you buy near the border or near the coastline, which is where all our five properties are near the coastline, you're going to be putting that into a structure called a fideicomiso. And, you know, that's basically just for somebody who's not a Mexican national. Now, if you were going to buy a lot of properties like we are, you're going to set up an LLC. And I will say that the accounting is very, very stringent on that. It's a, it's a lot different than you setting up an LLC in the United States. If you're going to buy in the middle of the country away from the border, it's any, any American could do that in their name. But basically, your, your two ownership options really. And, you know, if you needed something more than this, definitely introduce you to an attorney, but a fideicomiso is the one. So if you're going down and you want to buy in Cabo on the beach, that's obviously going to be right on the coast. You're going to put it in a fideicomiso. That's probably what 90, 95% of buyers are going to do. If you're going to buy multiple properties then you got to start looking at an LLC. Well, it's good to know that you're there to help people because I certainly wouldn't want to navigate that on my own. Yeah, I definitely, this is super interesting. It's so interesting. Like all the, the technicalities of it, this might be like totally off, but if I had a lot of money in my self-directed IRA, could I be a hard money lender in Mexico? Would that make sense? I mean, if I am like talking about like a lot and some people have accumulated a lot, like, is that something that people do? You know, that's a, that's a great question out of I actually had, I've had a couple people reach out and I think I, I just started a podcast real estate without borders, but I had somebody reach out about using uh, a self-directed IRA to buy property there. So I know it's a thing. I know there's some sort of asterisk next to that. I don't know. I think if you're using it as uh, you know, a self-directed IRA, it has to be an investment property. So you'd have to have like somebody living there, you know, or you couldn't live in there. And I, I don't know how they would enforce that. But to my knowledge, that's really the how you would do that. And I do think being a lender like that, there's definitely options because like I said, the, the biggest, you know, drawback or when I when people inquire about owning, it's all like, hey, hey, hey. And then when you go to the financing options, it's kind of like you can see the uh, sales deflate a little bit. But I think that's definitely an option. And I think going forward, uh, a lot more people are going to be looking into that. And are people looking into 
buying. So let's say like, so I live in LA, I'm not going to be moving permanently, but do people buy to then like rent and then use it? Or are most people buying and just holding it there either for themselves permanently, or, you know, could I Airbnb one down there? Like, how could I maximize it? If I'm thinking apples to apples in terms of returns and, and yields and, and everything like that, like how, what are you seeing people do the most or, or generally? It's a good, good question. So I see a lot of people that want to use it as a vacation home where obviously they're only going to be there maybe a, a couple months, or, you know, or maybe like a month out of the year. Then you see people that want it for retirement. And I see, you see people that they're going to buy and then rent it out and then COVID happens and they're not doing it. So now you're like, it's strictly a rental property. Right. And then there's like people that I, I know somebody who just sold her house in Portland and moved the whole family down there and was asking about schools and whatnot. So you have, I would say that most people, you know, and for whatever reason, I've I've had a lot of people reach out right around like the, you know, like 50 years old and they're like, Hey, we're going to buy this place. I'm going to be coming down a little bit and it's eventually going to become like my home. But right now I just want to basically have somebody manage it like Airbnb it. And then I want to come down when I want to. So, whereas, you know, and three of our properties, we have a long-term rental down there, but most people that are going to buy a property to rent out, they're going to go the Airbnb route. And it's really actually a pretty good market because as I was saying earlier, the hotel prices are so high that you can still get a pretty good return and charge a good rate on these uh, Airbnbs. Interesting. Yeah. I'm always, I'm always interested in like, I think it's always really important to have different options because like you said, you know, like COVID. And of course that is obviously like a a once in a lifetime. However, I think in all of our lifetimes, we've had multiple once in a lifetime things happen like the great recession and COVID and 9-11. But that said, I think it's important to have flexibility as real estate investors. And so it's really just like lots to, lots to think about. I wanted to quit to switch gears here as we, as we kind of come to the, come to the end of it and, and ask you so clearly Oh, maybe not. I'm assuming real estate forms the foundation of like your wealth building strategies. Would, would that be like, correct? Yeah, no, I've always been a, historically, I really like the stock market. And after having money in the stock market, I just, I did not like that I was not in control. So since I started, you know, after I got out of college, really, I, it was like, Hey, we started the investment side, but I was still kind of following the stock market. And I just really like the aspect that you're kind of in control with real estate. So I really like real estate as an investment. Yeah. And, and so when you, when you think about, when you think about like building, like building your wealth, what are some of the things that you, that you focus on from that perspective? So, you know, we have real estate as a foundation, but, but within that, are there any, any tips or anything that you've learned in your experience that you think are really important to pass on when people think about building their wealth, using real estate as a base? Yeah. You know, I think one of the biggest things I have going for me was the, you know, the example that my parents set for me. And that was, you know, living, below your means and kind of knowing that spending money will only make you so happy, you know? So I think, I think 
living below your means is probably the most important thing that I would want to give to somebody because I think I kind of know what me and my family would need. And I know that past that level, I will not get any more, you know, greater happiness from it. And, but I would love to invest that and grow that wealth. I, I would get much happier from seeing that be done. You know, I also think being contrarian is very important. You know, I think just the bubbles in hindsight are, you know, they're, they're very easy to see in hindsight, but I think being contrarian, it's very hard to do, especially at the tops of markets. But I think just, you know, being well-rounded education, whether that's, you know, courses or just being a voracious reader, I think all those things can help you. And that's really, you know, real estate's one of those things that I'm very happy that I did it or I was able to get into it at a young age and really kind of get my hands on it because it can be intimidating, but it's a great way to build wealth. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, okay. So last question that we ask everybody who, who comes on with us is what, what does wealth mean to you? So wealth to me really means being able to do what I want to do. You know, it really has nothing to do with being able to buy stuff. So if I can, if I could look back and say, Hey, I've lived a great life and I'm wealthy. It's, it's been that I've been able to, yes, put, put the, the kids through the schools they wanted to do, take the vacations, you know, live comfortably, but also be to the point where I don't really have to make decisions because I don't have enough money or I, I really think having the confidence through investing wisely, I think that's the, the biggest benefit you can have to from, from being wealthy, not the material possessions. I love it. I love it. Having the confidence. Fantastic. Well, Fletcher, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us today. It's so interesting to learn about investing internationally, specifically in Mexico. So clearly anyone, you know, everyone that's listening, if if they have questions, we're going to put in the show notes, you know, where to find you. And I will reiterate this. You're, I love your videos. So if anyone was on the fence after seeing them, I think they'll probably want to move there at least like purchase and knowing how complex it sounds to me and, and knowing that there's somebody trustworthy there to help is, is like a really good resource. So I hope that people will reach out if they're, if they're interested. So, you know, any kind of like parting, like specifically like where people can find you, like, where would you prefer somebody to reach out to you if they were going to do that. First, thank you so much for having me on at a PN Daniel. I really like to talk real estate because, you know, not that many people understand the process in Mexico. Probably the best way to get to me would be either LinkedIn, Fletcher Wheaton. I have a website, cabokey.com. You can contact me there. I got YouTube videos under Fletcher Wheaton, but I would say connecting with me on LinkedIn would probably be the best way. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you, Fletcher, so much for being on the show and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alpha And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. 
And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.